1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. The last thing
2: in the world Bannister wanted anybody to know was written evidence that he was associated with Oswald in the summer of 1963. And in fact, I also write in the book when Bannister found out that Oswald had put 544 Camp Street, on one of the flyers, he went into a rage. We told a couple people who worked there, oh my God, what is this gonna look like with my address on his damn flyers?
0: If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive, commercial-free episodes per month. Plus, access to my back catalog of episodes to subscribe, Here's Richard Serrett. We always say assassination. It's one of those terms that it's very political, and we tend to lose sight of the fact that there was a murder actually committed on that day. We're talking about the murder of a human being, a father, a husband, not only the president. Sometimes, you know, we tend to lose perspective, and we forget that. And so we continue along in our ongoing series tonight, It's part three of JFK, Connecting the Dots. And I've recruited one of the top guys for this series because very few things about JFK and the assassination uh, that he doesn't know. If there's someone who knows more, I'd like to meet him. James D. Eugenio is co-founder of two organizations, the Citizens for the Truth About the Kennedy Assassination and the Coalition on Political Assassinations. He's co-editor of The Assassinations, a book, on the deaths of not only JFK but MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X, and he is the author of the recently published second edition of *Destiny Betrayed: JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case*. James D. Eugenio, how are you? Okay, fine. We should just do a very quick recap for those keeping track at home. Uh, in in part one of our ongoing series, you talked about. The, uh, the rise of the national security state in the United States uh, before President Kennedy took office. So once he became president, this, of course, is, is uh, you know the milieu that he found himself in. And we all remember him talking about wanting to smash the CIA into a million pieces because he really got a, an education, I guess while he was senator, touring around the world and finding out how this new national security state was really operating, the nefarious things that they were behind. Uh, in part two, we focused on Oswald's early years, first in the Marines, later being stationed at the Atsugi uh, uh, Air Force Base in Japan as a, as a radar specialist, and then his, his um, defection to the Soviet Union under rather bizarre circumstances, and then his equally bizarre repatriation into the United States, uh, finding himself in Dallas. Tonight, uh, James, in part three, we're going to talk about Oswald in New Orleans, which is a very fascinating chapter. So let's begin before we get into actually his his return to his his birthplace in New Orleans in what was it April of '63. We need to back up a little bit because, as you point out in Destiny Betrayed, one of the reasons that his his wife uh, cited for them deciding to move there is kind of interesting. It had to do with an attempted assassination of General Edwin Walker. First of all, who was General Edwin Walker?
2: Walker was a former military man who had a kind of long and distinguished career. He was removed from his office for handing out uh, extreme right-wing literature um, to um, his troops, right? Uh, he then went ahead and retired to private life, and he was living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, you know, at this time period, uh, the previous year he had been active in trying to obstruct Kennedy's attempts to get James Meredith into the University of Mississippi. Let me add here: although the Warren Commission says that Oswald went ahead and took a shot at Walker. In my book, I argue that nobody really knows why the Oswalds moved in New Orleans at this time, because I believe the case of the Warren Commission has against Oswald for taking a shot at Walker is as weak as other cases against Oswald. That is, in the Tippett shooting and in the Kennedy shooting. Why do I say that? Well, very few people know that in the entire eight months that the Dallas Police investigated the Walker shooting, Oswald was never a suspect. He only became a suspect once the FBI came into the case uh, at the behest of the Warren Commission. All right. So for eight months, Os- Oswald's name didn't even come up. Okay, for the for, for the Walker shooting. Now, there's a couple other problems. With the case against Oswald. Number one, if you look at the Dallas police records, um, the bullet that was in evidence does not match, okay, the uh, rifle that Oswald was supposed to have, okay? And as I've discussed with you, although I don't think we discussed on this show yet, you know, I have really some serious problems about the whole Manekur Carcano issue. You know whether or not Oswald ordered that rifle in the first place.
0: All right? Yeah, I think we and we can dedicate an entire show and maybe we yeah, will to yeah. that well
2: you really could. You probably yes. could, yeah. Well
0: all we'll right. do that.
2: All right. Now now on top of all this, the one witness that the police had that was a good witness, all right, um, a young kid, I think he was fifteen years old, um Identified two men escaping from the scene that night, and neither one of them was Oswald. Okay, because Oswald couldn't drive. At least he believed the Warren Commission; he couldn't drive. All right. So I have I have a lot of problems with the case against Oswald. You know, for the Walker shooting, I don't I don't think it's very strong. So, in my opinion, um, the re- if I had to speculate as to a reason as to why the Oswalds moved to New Orleans in the spring of 1963. In my opinion, it was because Oswald was ordered there to join up with the uh, the CIA-FBI anti-fair play for Cuba Committee campaign, which he was shortly going to be a part of.
0: Right. But, yeah. but just, just to back up, and we'll just uh, one more point on, on uh, General Walker. If you're trying to build this case... That Oswald is this commie simp, then you know it makes perfect sense that you'd write, that you would try to hang this this uh, attempted assassination of an extreme right wing, you know hawk on 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 mm-hmm. Oswald. That makes sense, right? Right. So, and as you say, that didn't come out, you know, until after Oswald was dead, uh, that Marina said, well, that was the reason we moved to Dallas. But you're saying it had more to do with the right. fact that he was, in fact, as we'll discuss further in this hour, a CAA operative, an asset, uh, an agent provocateur. So, April of 1963, they moved to New Orleans. At what point does Oswald become involved uh, or begin, you know, distributing pamphlets on the street on behalf of Fair Play for Cuba?
2: Well the fur as John Newman has noted, there's two phases to Oswald in New Orleans. There's the undercover phase, okay, in which Oswald doesn't have a high profile. And then, and then excuse me, and then there's the overt phase where Oswald really begins to attract a lot of public attention by this leafleting Okay, all on these main streets in front of these big landmarks like the International Trademark, okay? Uh, and that comes a little bit later, okay, in the summer, okay? But in the first couple of months, um, you know, April and May, you know, first part of June, Oswald does most of this stuff undercover because there's these leaflets found at certain colleges, okay, uh, like like Tulane, all right? Um, and they they go and they go back to you know Oswald's uh, P.O. box. Okay, so the first part of that is kind of low profile. Then in the summer, okay, in the summer, the middle of the summer, it starts to get you know really kind of, of overt. Now, before we talk about that, though, I think it's important to talk a little bit about the whole um, menagerie, you know, at five forty-four Camp Street.
0: Yes, this is it, this is fascinating.
2: Of is, a, is a real key to well, if you ask me, it might be the most important thing about the whole New Orleans thing is the fact that Oswald's flyers had that address on them. Okay, and yet to understand why that was so bizarre, okay, you just have to understand what the heck was going on you know, at 544 Camp Street, okay, you had an assortment of these extreme right-wing zealots, okay, who inhabited that building, you know, people like Delphine Roberts, who was very, very conservative, you know, and she was like one of these Daughter of the American Revolution types, all right, you know, uh, you know, she was, she didn't even like, you know, public schools, Okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, and, and she was, uh, when Guy Bannister met her, she had a booth down there in Canal Street saying that the, uh, the public buildings didn't honor the American flag enough. You know, so that's how conservative she was, right? Then, of course, you have the guy who I just mentioned, Guy Bannister, you know, who is a very, very right-wing kind of a guy who worked for the Federal Bureau of Investigation for a long period of time, for about 20-some years. All right. Then moved to New Orleans and was working as an kind of ombudsman for the police department there, got into some trouble, and then essentially kind of became a um, a bagman for both the CIA and the FBI, doing a lot of undercover work for them under the guise of having a private investigator office, except Bannister didn't do any private investigating. There were these other guys there to do it, you know, like people, you know, like um, uh, Jack Martin and Joe Oster and things like that.
0: We're being asked to believe that that Oswald is sort of running the New Orleans chapter of Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which is this activist group that set up in, I guess, in New York back in 1960. A lot of interesting members of that uh, of that uh, group. You had you had people like uh, Truman Capote and Norman Mailer, uh, the great author James Baldwin. Uh Lawrence Ferlinghetti. So here he is distributing uh, pamphlets in New Orleans on behalf of Fair Play for Cuba. On the back of these flyers is stamped the address 544 Camp Street. And this is where uh, Bannister is, as you point out in your book, running a clearinghouse for anti-Castro Cubans involved in Mongoose. And this was the, the, the ongoing operation to try and assassinate Castro. We're being asked to believe... That Oswald is running, you know, Fair Play for Cuba out of the same offices as Bannister, and they don't—they don't know that each other exists. Right. Pretty bizarre.
2: Uh, l- 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 let me correct something for the record: Mongoose was not meant to assassinate Castro; it was meant to try and overthrow his 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 government. Okay. The the, the, the CIA on its own was trying to assassinate Castro, and that was deliberately kept from 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 the Kennedys. But your general point is correct. The Bay of Pigs and Mongoose were run in New Orleans in large part out of Guy Bannister's office. You know, there was a constant flow, you know, of Cuban exiles and weaponry, you know, going in and out of there. All right. So, what on earth is this pro Castro guy, you know, working for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee doing in Guy Bannister's office with these other people? Now, Since I believe this is a very crucial point, I count about 13 witnesses, okay, who in the declassified files, all, you know, who one way or another confirm that Oswald was there. The other side, of course, has done everything they could to keep him out of Bannister's office because they know, you know, if, if Oswald is there doing the things that it appears he was doing, they have a really serious problem. Who the heck was this guy? You know, And so my argument is I believe that Oswald was there to go ahead and do this anti-Fair Play for Cuba Committee stuff because the CIA and the FBI really did not like the things that the Fair Play for Cuba, Cuba Committee was doing. And in one of the declassified files from the CIA, what is so interesting of this is that the two guys running the anti-FPCC campaign out of the CIA headquarters were David Phillips and Jim McCord. That's very, very interesting.
0: Explain who David Phillips right. is.
2: Well, David Phillips at this particular time was a mid-level operations officer who was running, um, a lot of the anti-Cuban stuff, you know, for the Central Intelligence Agency. And he would fly around from Mexico City to Langley to JM Wave in Miami, supervising a lot of these anti you know Castro operations. Him and Howard Hunt had been friends going all the way back to the 1954 operation to overthrow Arbenz in Guatemala, and they had both worked together also on the Bay of Pigs operation, all right? And both men really despise Kennedy, you know, for a lot of different reasons. You know, one of them was that it looked like Kennedy was um, winding down the crusade against Cuba at this particular time, okay? Now, Phillips is a very suspicious character for a lot of different reasons, but his name pops up in this saga in so many different places at so many different times. You know, for example, in addition to running the anti-FPCC campaign for the CIA, you know, Antonio Vesiana, who was one of his guys in Alpha 66, um, would later say that he saw Phillips with Oswald in Dallas, the Southland Center, in, I think, it was August of 1963. All right? You know, then, of course, you have... Phillips down in Mexico City doing these rather suspicious things with the Oswald record, you know, down there, which we, we haven't talked about. I imagine we're going to talk about that in the future, because that's a key, very key point, you know, in in my book, is a whole Mexico City thing, you know. And then again, as I describe in my book, it appears that Phillips is, is in New Orleans running this telethon with guys like um, Sir Yorikacha Smith and Ed Butler and Gordon Novell to raise money for the Cuban exiles you know in the New Orleans area so he's a guy who just keeps on coming up in this story and I culminate in my book with um, the phone call between him and his brother you know when Phillips in the in the late 80s when Phillips is dying you know and his brother, You know, and he had this final conversation, and his brother asked him, were you in Dallas that day? And Phillips is kind of sobbing, and he admits that he was. You know, so here's a guy who was maybe running Oswald in New Orleans in the summer of 63. Then he's in Mexico City, you know, with this uh, cover story about Oswald being in Mexico City. And then he's in Dallas on the day of the assassination. I don't know how you can get more suspicious than that.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, you, <laughs> met, you mentioned the other one uh, uh, aside from David Atlee Phillips was uh, G- James McCord.
2: Oh, Jim McCord, of course, McCord, everybody knows him because from the Watergate. McCor- yeah. McCord, of course, was the guy involved in the break-in at the Watergate Hotel a few years down the line. All right, you know, along with Hunt, you know, with about five other Cubans with them. All right, so McCord, of course, was. Uh, an upper-level operator in the CIA for a long period of time who was very close to Richard Helms, all right? And, you know, if you follow McCord's career, he's a dyed-in-the-wool CIA loyalist, okay? You know, and um, he wrote that famous letter to Judge Zirica. I No, it wasn't the Judge Zerica. some guy in the White House saying, you know, if, if Nixon fires Helms, you know, every tree in the forest will fall which is exactly what he did, by the way. Okay, and so, and so, you know, McCord and Phillips, you know, are, are very staunch, dyed-in-the-wool, you know. Uh, so it, it would make sense that they would be running this FPCC campaign, especially since Phillips is a propaganda expert, McCord is a security expert, and they were raiding the office of the New York Fair Play for Cuba Committee, you know, and, and there are other offices throughout the country to get names of the people who were on these committees. Now, there was no need to do that in New Orleans because the only member was Oswald, okay? So he, the question then becomes, you know, what communist in his right mind would open up a fair play for Cuba Committee in New Orleans at this time period? You know, very conservative city. Right. Outside of Miami, it has the highest population of Cuban exiles, you know, in the whole southwest southeast corner. You know, so it's very, very bizarre the whole creation of this Fair Play for Cuba Committee, especially if it's being run out of Bannister's office, which it appears to have been.
0: Indeed, you mentioned uh, in an early conversation we'd had that if, in fact, uh, uh, Oswald was interested in. You know, properly uh, distributing these pamphlets. Uh, if he was actually doing his job correctly, he never would have done a lot of the things he did. Uh, expound on that a little bit.
2: Well, look, having I have talked to some communists at that who were communists at that time period. All right, and they would tell me, "Look, we knew Oswald was not a communist." Because everything he did was wrong. You know, we understood the way he went about doing these things. And he wasn't doing them the correct way. You know, because when you're in a position like that, in a conservative city like New Orleans, with this high concentration of Cuban exiles, you don't put out this high profile. You want to keep a rather low profile. All right. You don't want to be so overt. And when you do this leafleting, you don't do it in the broad daylight in the afternoon on the busiest street in town. You know, you do it, you know, in the evening, okay, under cover of darkness, and you leave these flyers, okay, not in somebody's hand where everybody around them can see, but you might leave them, like, in a foyer at an apartment house or slide it under a doorway so that the stigma attached, you know, with looking at one of these things is not shared with other people, all right? So what these people told me, you know, like, look, we knew Oswald wasn't a communist just from that, You know, and then, there, of course, there was a report by the head of the Communist Party in Texas, I think his name was Stanford, you know, who, to the F- who said to the FBI, You know, Oswald wasn't a communist, Oswald was a CIA agent, okay? And by the way, that's exactly what Castro said 24 hours after the assassination, right? Uh, In 24 hours, Castro understood that Oswald was probably either an FBI or a CIA double agent, just from the profile he was doing, because he understood also that what he was doing was completely out of character, you know? For a, a communist guy in a in, in in a city like that, you know, so those are some of the things you know that I think should have been more evident, you know, even at the time. But see, what Oswald didn't understand, of course, he didn't understand, is that th- there was an end game to all this. There was an end result, which he did not foresee. Okay, and the end result was that on the day of the assassination. All these clips and pictures and films of him doing this stuff in New Orleans was going to be immediately injected into the media.
0: For example, him posing in uh, Ruth Payne's backyard with the, uh, the, um, the pro-Cuba, uh, pro-Castro well, literature. No, 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 not,
2: not, not just that, but there were actually films of him and pictures of him doing the leafleting in New Orleans. So this picture that the public had was of a genuine communist. Okay, that was the immediate reaction to these pictures being and these films being taken. You know, while he was in New Orleans. Now you might want to ask yourself, uh, why the heck would anybody want to take a film, you know, of this lonely guy? Well, one of the reasons is is that Oswald went ahead and did these things and. These very overt places, like in front of Clay Shaw's International Trademark, okay, which was a kind of landmark kind of uh, uh, at that time, you know, and so there were naturally going to be pick- people taking pictures and maybe even films, you know, to, you know, of other people being in front of that building. Uh, he had newly constructed it, okay, and so so what happened is this stuff now gets into the into the you know, the twenty four hour news cycle once Kennedy is killed. And so everyone now has this image of Oswald, this lonely guy in New Orleans, you know, trying to drum up sympathy for Fidel Castro. It was a terrific subliminal image, you know, for them to put out there.
0: Sure. Because
2: sure. it it did both things. It pictured him as an offbeat loner type. And second as a communist sympathizer type, okay. And this, well, of course, th- those are the two themes that the Warren Commission will use as his motivation for killing Kennedy.
0: And meanwhile, he was just there uh, as a CIA asset, as an agent provocateur, told to infiltrate. This Fair Play for Cuba Committee and you know destroy their image. Uh, we'll yes. come back with James D. Eugenio, author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. We'll we'll get into how in August of 1963, Oswald appear, appears to uh, you know reach out to some of the anti-Castro Cubans. This leads to a, a street fight, some bizarre appearances on uh, on a radio station in New Orleans, and a. Uh, uh, an imprisonment, a brief imprisonment for Oswald, and a bizarre interview with uh, an FBI agent. We'll get into all of that as we con- uh, continue with our third installment of Connecting the Dots, JFK Assassination, with James Eugenio. My name is Richard Serrett. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love Tales of the Paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. I use Life Change Tea from Get The Tea every morning and it's made such a huge difference in my life. Buy a one year supply of super strength Life Change Tea and start feeling rejuvenated right now. Life Change Tea is not the same tea you buy in a store, off the shelf. Life Change Tea from Get The Tea has eight powerful herbs blended together to maximize your health. This tea is specially formulated to help cleanse your kidneys, liver, colon, and blood. All at once. The colon is one of the most ignored organs in the human body. The faster that waste is eliminated from the body, the less time that waste sits in our intestines, spreading toxins to our bloodstream. The benefits of this product go way beyond what I've listed here. Do your research and start your day with a cool, refreshing 16-ounce glass of Super Strength Life Change Tea. It's non-GMO, organic, caffeine-free, and again, not available in any store. Use the code unlimited and all your orders ship for free. So go on, get your tea from getthetea.com.
1: The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed, then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self evident. Let me just read that again what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: Welcome back. Tonight, episode three of our ongoing series. On the assassination of JFK, James D. Eugenio is with us, the author of *Destiny Betrayed*, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case, and we're talking about Oswald in New Orleans. Uh, now, in August, it's it's kind of this is kind of an interesting chapter here. Why does Oswald, at this point, then seemingly reach out to some anti-Castro gu- group? Uh, I think they were called the Student Revolutionary Directorate. He reaches out to these. Uh, these individuals in New Orleans, and says, I'd like to, to join your fight against Castro. What's he, what's he up to?
2: Well, this, of course, is one of the most fascinating parts of, of the whole story. This was called the DRE, the Directory and you know, Estudante Revolucion, okay? You know, and it was being run by, if you listen to Howard Hunt, it was being run by Davis Phillips, okay? It was supposed to be his group. All right? And also it was being subsidized by Claire Booth Luce, the wife of Henry Luce of Time magazine. Now, Oswald reportedly first approaches him saying that he wants to help them and help train them and do drills with them, etc. In other words, pretending that he's supposed to be an anti-Castro you know, sympathizer, all right? Then, of course, the next step is that he then goes ahead and starts leafleting on one of these busy streets. The word gets back to Carlos Brignier, who was a guy he was talking to just a day or two earlier, and they have this altercation, all right? Now, if you follow this altercation, it's very bizarre because... Although Oswald's the guy getting punched, he's the guy who pays the fine. Bring the A gets off, okay, and so, of course, it's Oswald's name, you know, that goes ahead and gets in all the papers and gets circulated, all right? Now, I should say one more thing. Before the court appearance, Oswald was arrested, and as you mentioned, He's in jail for a short time. Now, think, think of the absurdity of this. If Oswald is really working for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, all right? why on earth would you call the Federal Bureau of Investigation to come down and interview you if you're in the FPCC? I mean, isn't those, aren't those the last guys you want to talk to?
0: Exactly. So before leaving the police station, that's what Oswald asks to do. Let me speak to an FBI right. agent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay.
2: <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, most people w- you know, who knew anything about the way these things worked would say, well, obviously, Oswald's some kind of informant. I mean, if that's what he does, if he gets arrested working for the FPCC, and his first action once he's in jail is to call the FBI, and the FBI comes down, you know, and according to the latest research... Oswald specifically requested Warren DeBreeze, all right? And the young man working the FBI desk that night, a kid named William Walter, he's not a kid anymore, of course, but he said that he went over to the files, okay, and looked up and found that Oswald had a file there with DeBreeze's name on it. Okay, but the breeze wasn't there, wasn't in the office. So a different guy named James Quigley goes down to interview Oswald. Now, very hard to determine how long the interview lasted. But most people believe that it was at least an hour and a half. Okay, maybe as long as two.
0: And you have to ask yourself if if Castro or or, sorry, if Oswald wasn't. Uh, working with the FBI at some, in some capacity, you know, why would the FBI send an agent down to, to speak to some individual that was involved in a minor, you know, fracas on the street, right? And then spend an hour and a half with him,
2: and stay that long? You know, what would be the point of, of staying that long? What would, you know, unless of course Oswald was actually briefing Quigley on what he was doing there? You know, the whole thing.
0: Did Quigley take notes?
2: Uh, well he did but the first batch were torn up.
0: How can so we only
2: have a second a second the second version of the notes
0: so uh, tell me about Oswald's appearance on uh, this radio uh, program in New Orleans called Latin Listening Post It was uh, hosted by a guy named William Stuckey what was what was the purpose of Oswald getting on that program
2: well ostensibly the idea was that they were in debate the merits of the two different systems, okay? The Marxist system and the free enterprise system, okay? Or democratic system, what do you want to call it? What happened, though, and I think this was on the second show, not the first show, because Oswald came back for another show, is that somehow the people who were debating Oswald, which was Bringier, Ed Butler, and, as you said, a guy named Stuckey, Bill Stuckey, they found out that Oswald had been a defector. So this, of course, may Oswald look kind of bad because, you know, it's one thing for an American to say, let's be nice to Castro. But it's another thing for a guy who's already defected to the Soviet Union. I mean, you start looking, you know, like you're a real ideological, you know, um, nut. Okay. And so now that, let me say something about the show, the Stucky Show. Once Oswald was exposed, okay, he tried to say that um, while I was in the Soviet Union, I was under the protection of the State Department. He slipped up. Okay, in other words he slipped up. He caught himself and he said I was not under the protection of the State Department. But here's the problem. When you look for the transcript of the radio broadcast There's no flub up. In other words, they cut that part out, okay? You know, so nobody would see that Oswald had, you know, slipped up there and made a mistake, all right? So that's the Warren Commission for you, okay? They never made a mistake that helped Oswald. Every single mistake was always to hurt the case, you know, to hurt hurt Oswald's image.
0: Now, when Oswald was on this radio program, again espousing the We're
2: getting into late summer now.
0: Right, right. But he's he's on there debating, and he's basically pro Castro, uh, and he's he's debating these anti Castro uh, Latinos in New Orleans. Was he not right. being sort of shepherded around by CIA? Was it Phillips that, that went with him to the radio station, or who who is who is? No, 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 no. It, it, it,
2: it, it wasn't it, it wasn't Phillips. Okay, I think in this instance, um, I think it was Butler. Stuckey had heard about the incident, okay? The host of the show. Alright, he had heard about the incident. Okay, so he is actually the guy who gets in contact with Oswald. But Stuckey knew both Butler and Ringier, okay? And so he arranged to have those two guys there. Now Butler, Butler had some connections in Washington, alright? With the Senate Committee, you know, on um, on intelligence, which at that time was sort of like the equivalent of the House on American Activities Committee, a bunch of right wingers were on that committee, all right, and so he's the one who found out about Oswald uh, defecting to the Soviet Union. I mean, it wasn't that hard to find out, because there were a couple of newspaper stories about it. But that's how he got the information. That's how that... Now, later, of course, it turns out that Butler worked for INCA, the Information Council of the Americas, which we now know was very much heavily uh, involved with the CIA. Okay? So, if you add on to the fact that Ringier... Was with the DRE, you know, Butler was working for Inca, and Stuckey was an FBI informant. Well, it starts to look kind of fishy, you know, (laughs) to, to say the least.
0: Right, right, that's for sure. Uh, we have uh, about seven, about seven, eight minutes left, James, and I just wanted to, to touch on, if we could, uh, about, about David Ferry. Now, it's alleged that Ferry, David Ferry, was involved in the assassination. Perhaps he was the, the getaway pilot, uh, and that he had known Oswald back in the day when Oswald uh, and he were both members of the Civil Aviation Patrol. What can you tell me about, about David Ferry?
2: Well, Perry, of course, was one of the most interesting people, you know, involved in, in the whole Kennedy case, all right? Um, a genuinely very bright guy, you know, who um, had a very um, kind of uh, curiosity about a lot of different disciplines, you know, who then plagued by this disease, you know, where which made his hair fall out, you know, Plus, the problem he had at that time with his homosexuality, you know, which was not accepted, you know, back there in the late fifties, early sixties, you know, um, eventually lost his his job, which was he was a, supposed to be a very good pilot, you know, and um, then began to kind of go downhill, you know. After that, now, in addition to that, his qualities as a human being. There's also an association with Oswald, which um, many people think was a very crucial event in Oswald's life. Because Ferry had a history of recruiting young men you know, who did not have the best family backgrounds, which Oswald certainly didn't have, you know, and going ahead and getting him somehow in the military. And in fact, Oswald did try and get into the Marines earlier than his age allowed. Some people think it was actually Ferry who urged him to do this. And so then, of course, um, Oswald did get into the Marines, and he went into this intelligence work, Okay, which, you know, Ferry was also instrumental in, in that, recruiting them in for intelligence purposes. You know, Ferry then in 61 is involved in the Bay of Pigs, and 62 is involved in training for mongoose, you know, and... Then, of course, there is the very curious events of 1963, which really seem to indicate that Ferry and Bannister, and to a lesser extent Clay Shaw, were somehow involved in the maneuvering of Oswald in order to frame him for the Kennedy assassination. Now, did they know that they were doing that? I'm not really sure on that point. You know, did they know that in advance? It's something that's kind of, you know, unknowable. But Ferry did some very odd things after the assassination. You want to talk about those?
0: Yes, let's. We have a few minutes. Let's do that.
2: Okay. All right. For instance, he started calling up all the people in the Civil Air Patrol and asking if there was any pictures of him with Oswald that they had. Okay. And um, then he tried to find if anybody had... His library card, okay? You know, because he, he was worried that he had lent it to Oswald that summer, okay? You know, and he is clearly trying to go ahead and eliminate any evidence that would link him to Oswald. Now, when Garrison has him under arrest, it questions him, and he comes up with these bizarre answers about. You know, well, we're going ice skating, okay? We're going ice skating in Texas,
1: right? <laughs> sure, and, why not? Uh,
2: we're going goose hunting, you know? And Garrison says, wait a minute, you, you're telling me you drove four hours through one of the worst thunderstorms of the year to go ice skating and goose hunting? And you forgot your shotguns? You know? And so he turns him over to the FBI, you know, which was a bad mistake, because Ferry lied throughout his FBI interview, you know, he said things like uh, he had never uh, handled a scoped rifle, and he even said that uh, he had never instructed anybody, you know, to handle weapons, which, of course, was a bunch of baloney, because he was involved in the training for both the Bay of Pigs, you know, and Mongoose, Okay. He said he didn't know Oswald. He said he never instructed Oswald, you know, in the Civil Air Patrol, which is another lie. Okay. You know, now, what's important to remember about this is that it's a federal statute that it's a crime to lie to an FBI agent. Okay. If you get caught lying to an FBI agent, you know, it's the same thing as committing perjury. You know, well, Ferry was not only lying. He was also attempting to obstruct justice by getting rid of this evidence that was going to connect him with Oswald. So in my book, I say, if anybody wants to know if J. Edgar Hoover had any interest in solving the Kennedy case, you know, the answer is no, because he could have had Ferry under arrest, you know, right then and there for lying in this FBI interview, you know, a couple of days after the assassination. So the guy was a prime suspect just off that FBI interview, you know. Because you want to know, like, you know, what, you know, people don't like being indicted for perjury. Why are you lying? Okay, so that's obviously the question that we'll never have fully answered because, like I said in the book, Hoover didn't wasn't interested in who had killed Kennedy no, at no. that point. He was only interested in framing Oswald.
0: Fascinating chapter. Just to, just to, um, to, to sort of wrap this up, it's it's also interesting to note we mentioned we've been talking about Guy Bannister and, and you mentioned one of his investigators, Jack Martin, and there's that story that at the uh, that was the afternoon of the assassination, November 22nd, 63. Martin talked about being in a bar drinking with Bannister. They got into some dispute. Bannister uh, accused Martin of stealing some of his files, and again, uh, Bannister had a horrible temper. He starts pistol whipping Martin with his 357 Magnum, and Martin says to Bannister something like, what are you going to do to me? Kill Kennedy? Or, what are you going to do to me? Uh, Do the same thing? uh, Like, you know, you killed Kennedy, right? You're going to do the same thing to me as you did to Kennedy? Right. Yeah, that's a a true story.
2: Okay, and I actually fill out that story a little bit in my book with the declassified files from uh, the House Select Committee. Delphine Roberts, in one of her interviews, the House Select Committee, said that Martin was actually going for the Oswald files. And that's what, you know, because that's what, you know, if he just went into the files, you know, that wouldn't be so bad. But on that particular day, to go into the Oswald file, okay, that's what sent Bannister over the edge, okay? You know, because, Absolutely. of course, the last thing in the world, Bannister wanted anybody to know, was written evidence that he was associated with Oswald you know in the summer of 1963 and in fact I also write in the book you know when uh, when when Bannister found out that Oswald had put 544 Camp Street on one of the flyers he went into a rage you know he told a couple people who worked there you know oh my god what is this going to look like with my address on his damn flyers you know
0: there you go listen so James
2: obviously you know, Bannister probably called Oswald in and said, what the hell are you doing? You know, right after that. Yeah.
0: All right. We will pick this up next week, uh, James. Thank you for this. Okay, Richard. James G. I'll talk D-E-G. to you next week, buddy. right Bye-bye.
1: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind.